Let's take a moment to pray together now. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, what an amazing teacher you were when you walked the earth. Thank you that these stories that you brought to us are still seeds that can grow life within us even today as your Spirit takes their truth and helps it to bed down in our lives. So help us to hear the story again today afresh, and may your Spirit take it and use it um, within our lives to help us to know how you would have us live and to further the work of your kingdom here upon earth for your glory and for the sake of this world that you love and that you died to save. So hear our prayers because we ask them in Christ's name. Amen. Just over three years ago, I found myself sailing through the air and landing on my back in a field when I crashed my car just above Green Den Farm, just up the road behind us here. Going by the pain, I was pretty sure that I'd broken some ribs, but the fact that I could still wiggle my toes reassured me that at least my spine was okay. For the first few minutes, I just lay there in the damp grass with the flies buzzing around me and the sun beating down on me, calling out for help, which was a pretty forlorn hope, given that it was early afternoon. The closest houses were actually quite far away, and nobody seemed to be around. I heard a few cars go past, but they didn't stop. Maybe they were preoccupied and didn't see the car on its roof in the field below them. But I knew that I needed help, so I managed to get over and to crawl over to the car and to get my phone, and it was about then that I heard a car stop up on the road and a voice I recognized saying, look, it's Paul. And it was Laura Barron and her daughter Nicola on their way home from the Forsyth Hall after Pilates. I've never been so glad that we ran a Pilates class in the Forsyth Hall. And Laura got me to lie down and to keep still, and she phoned for an ambulance. And within a few minutes, I was being helped out of the field and given some morphine, which is something I have to say I don't want to be repeating anytime soon. Sick as a dog by the time I reached the hospital. But I was just so grateful that Laura stopped to help that day and to be my own personal good Samaritan. Today's story is about someone who stops to help and two others who don't. And like all the parables that Jesus tells, it's more than just a story. It's telling us something about how God wants us to be. Jesus is being quizzed by a lawyer type, but as usual, he's managed to turn the tables and he's actually putting the lawyer's faith under the microscope. They have a discussion. And they agree together that loving God and loving neighbor is at the heart of things, which is good. The lawyer's doing well. But then he goes and drops the ball by asking, and who is my neighbor? In other words, who are we required to help and respect and who can we just forget about? Where can we draw the line? 
It's a question that grows out of a mindset that Jesus has come to challenge. The mindset of us and them, in and out, valued by God and not really valued by God. And his challenge comes in the form of the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the best-known parables still to this day. We know it well enough that you don't need me to repeat it again, but the essence is a Jewish man gets mugged on the notorious Jerusalem to Jericho road, a dangerous road. He's beaten and robbed and left for dead. And a priest and then a Levite, a religious lawyer, walk past and don't get involved. Men of his own stripe leave him there. And it's the notional enemy, a Samaritan man, who turns out to be the hero of the story and goes out of his way to help this wounded Jewish stranger. We know this story so well, it's hard to hear it with fresh ears. But let's take a moment this morning to reflect on why these men in the story acted as they did, the two men who walked past, and think about what Jesus might be trying to tell us through this parable. Why did the priest and the Levite give the man who was robbed a wide berth? Well, firstly, I'd suggest it's because they were scared. And who can blame them? It was a dangerous road, a notorious road, and it was a risky situation that they were faced with. We live such ordered and predictable lives most of the time. We structure our days to minimize risk and contact with anyone or anything that's going to make us feel uncomfortable. Our routines make us feel secure. Same faces during the week, same pew on a Sunday, same friends at coffee time. No need to step outside the environment in which we feel in control. But to take a step towards someone in danger, someone on the edge, well, that's the opposite. That's walking into a world of chaos. When I first moved to Glasgow, I used to help occasionally with the soup run down to Anderston in the city center. And on my first night there, I had my first real conversation with a homeless man. And I ended up sending him away with my coat and my hat. I hadn't bargained for that. And that same night, I also had my first conversation with a girl who was working the streets. And boy, did I feel out of my depth. What would a wee, good-living Northern Irish boy talk to a prostitute about? How's business? Where do you go with that? It's scary. You're not in control. You don't know how things are going to turn out. You don't know what the consequences might be for you. You might end up looking like an idiot or getting yourself into trouble. I'm sure that's part of what the priest and the Levite were thinking as they passed by on the other side of the road. Who knows what might happen if I stop here to help this guy? I'll be late for all my appointments. People are relying on me. And this road's a dangerous place. There's muggings all the time. They might be watching this right, right, right now. And of course, they were right. There is a cost in seeing 
and acting in these kind of circumstances. What they say makes perfect sense. What's going to happen to me if I stop and help is a legitimate question. But as Martin Luther King pointed out in his preaching in this parable, it's not the only question we need to ask. We also need to ask, what's going to happen to him if I don't stop and help? And that's the question the Samaritan asked. And that's why 2,000 years later, we are still calling him good. He was scared too, I would guess. But he stopped all the same. So there's our first reason that the priest and the Levite moved on. They were afraid. What else might have been in their minds? Well, the second thing I think they'd have been thinking about was what you might call the rules. And in the Old Testament, there were strict rules about priestly purity. And no priest who'd been in contact with anything unclean was able to perform his duties in the temple, and that meant avoiding dead bodies and spilled blood. And given that the Levites also performed functions in the temple, it's likely that those rules applied to them too, although that's not spelled out as fully in the Old Testament. But here's the thing. Weren't there any priests or Levites on the substitute's bench? If they stopped to help this man, couldn't someone else have taken their shift at the temple? Was it really that hard to organize? Maybe there's something else going on here. We know that it was considered an honor to perform your duties in the temple and that your name only appeared on some of the rotas very infrequently. Were they afraid of missing out on their big moment if they stopped to help this injured man? We need to take care when our concern for the rules actually rule out something far more important, the preservation and the flourishing of human life. That very issue became a flashpoint between Jesus and the Pharisees, who were, of course, the ultimate rule keepers. Jesus would pull a miracle out of the bag and heal someone and all they could say is, oh, well, you're not from God. You've healed on the Sabbath. The Pharisees tended to turn their noses up at anyone who wasn't a Jew. And yet on two different occasions, Jesus singles out a Gentile centurion and a Gentile woman for praise, saying, I haven't seen this kind of faith, not even in my people Israel. The Pharisees were very quick to label people as sinners and to write them off and avoid their company. Jesus accepted their hospitality and got to know them and as a consequence saw change in their lives. Jesus seems to have been quite happy to bend or to break the rules when they weren't serving God's larger end of bringing people back to Himself. The irony in this story is that it was the Samaritan who showed the same mind as Christ, not the insiders who should have known better. It was the Samaritan who broke the social rules and taboos about who you could and couldn't help, who you could and couldn't speak with. He chose not to see a Jewish man in trouble. He just saw a man. 
fellow human being. And out of compassion, he acted. And that brings me to the last reason the priest and the Levite might have walked by. Maybe deep down, they just convinced themselves that this guy wasn't really their problem. They didn't know him. They weren't responsible for his situation. Somebody else would have to deal with him. Unwittingly, they were echoing Cain's response to God when God asked him where his brother Abel was way back in the beginning of the story, the brother he'd just murdered. Am I my brother's keeper, he said, almost scornfully. Yes. Yes, you are, was God's unspoken answer. We have a responsibility to one another as human beings because we're all God's children, whether we realize it or not. And we are all made, every one of us made in God's image. Years ago, when I was in Tangiers in Morocco, I went browsing in a wee shop called The Friendly Shop. Uh, there was a lot of pressure and hassle on tourists everywhere you went in Tangiers. And the guy that ran the shop prided himself on it being a a less confrontational and stressful encounter going to buy something. So that's why it was called the friendly shop. And the guy that ran it was a real character, great, great big uh, Arab guy, like something out of Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. And I did my best to barter him down on the price for the item that I wanted. And his son had it gift wrapped for me and practically throwing it into my hands before we'd even agreed on a price. But I couldn't get him down as far as I wanted him to go. And so I left the shop without buying, which was what the tour guide said you should do. So I put that to the side and we went on and we were walking back about half an hour later along the prom on the other side of the road when he spied me and he said, tourist, tourist, come back, come back. We are brothers, Adam and Eve, our parents. I give you good price. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> Adam and Eve our parents. God, the Father of all, Jesus, our brother, even though my Moroccan friend may not know it yet, because in taking on human flesh, Jesus entered into a brotherly solidarity with the entire human race. Remember what he says at the end of Matthew's gospel, I was hungry and you fed me, Naked and you clothed me, sick and you visited me. When did we see you hungry or naked or sick, Lord? Say the righteous. I tell you the truth, inasmuch as you did this for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. We are one human family in Christ, whether the world realizes it or not. And knowing that, we can't view anyone from a worldly point of view any longer. In Christ, we are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's neighbor. And the irony of the parable of the Good Samaritan is that the outsider, by his actions, is shown to be more in tune with the command of God than the insiders who have all the right language and all the right connections and all the right spiritual heritage, but still managed to miss the point. 
Who is my neighbor? The lawyer asked, wanting to justify himself. Wanting to know where we draw the lines. Who are we required to help and respect? And who can we just forget about? And Jesus' answer is that the whole world is our neighbor. Irrespective of their race, creed, status, or religion. And we as his followers are to go and embody that kind of mercy wherever it's needed to the glory of God. I'll end this morning with a wee reflection in the voice of the victim who found himself helped by the Good Samaritan. The priest and the Levite have already walked past. I thought no one cared. I sensed I was getting weaker and the blackness descended again. Then I felt a cool sponge on my head and someone trying to offer me a drink, checking to see what damage had been done. When I opened my eyes, I was filled with fear because he looked like, well, he looked like those thugs who had assaulted me. Yet he carried me to an inn, made sure I was looked after, and offered to pay for all my bills on his return. God bless that man. I, who was normally so judgmental of others, shown kindness by a total stranger, a supposed enemy. But he defied the odds by demonstrating the love, compassion, and kindness of our ever-loving God, the God I thought he didn't know and was far from. Praise be to that man and to the God who taught him what love and neighborliness and mercy are really all about. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word spoken and preached.